And now we get to the final story of today's episode, which is uh, a collection of things that Putin has said over a number of different speeches. And I'll be honest, I've sort of lost track over some of them. Although I and I do have uh, the St. Petersburg's uh, 26th International Economic Forum here. I had the comments that he made to the African delegation when they met in Russia. And then I had the remarks he made earlier on in the week regarding the Ukraine counteroffensive. And so I, instead of making separate topics about all of them, I figured I'd just put them all together. And because they, they go together in an interesting way. And they do lay out a number of things about Russia, Russia's position on the war, Russia's position internationally, uh, as well as what they aim to do with this emerging world order, the, the multipolar world order. So, uh, and again, because Russia's really setting the temple here, and I think that this, these numbers of comments that he's making really convey that, especially as you watch the Ukrainians flounder in the background with their counteroffensive and the West hollow itself out trying to support and arm that counteroffensive, seeing Putin meeting with world leaders uh, back to back to back and making agreements and speaking to them directly, not only demonstrates uh, definitively if, well, I, I, at, at what point are we going to recognize, and by we, I mean, you know, the political class, the analysts, the news, when are they going to recognize that Russia is not isolated? When are they going to recognize that? I think it's going to take the BRICS summit, and I, I think it's going to be a St. Petersburg as well. I think it's going it's to take that. When all those countries, some say 81, although if I don't think it's 81 BRICS members, but 81 countries that are willing to go along with what the BRICS have to uh, have in mind, sort of like a, a, a the new Bretton Woods, because that, that's what we're looking at right now. We're looking at the Russians laying the groundwork for the new Bretton Woods conference, which is what's going to happen at this new BRICS summit if essentially the whole world shows up for the meeting and even France, Emmanuel Macron of France is asking for an invitation to this meeting, this BRICS summit in South Africa. Well, shoot, if it's in South Africa, it can't be in St. Petersburg. But we're looking at the groundwork being laid for a brand new global order that's going to rule the day for at least the rest of this century. Like things are changing. Uh, and Xi Jinping said it himself, when we come together, and he's talking about him and Putin, when we come to him, when we come together, we make possible changes that have not happened in a hundred years. And that's what's happening here. Changes that have not happened in a hundred years are happening. And it's the Russians who are in the driver's seat. There's lots of talk about how the Russians have become a, a client state of the Chinese. They're subservient to China. No, the Russians are a great power. And I, I've said as much on the podcast for the longest. And I, I'm surprised that I have to articulate why. But they are a great power. They have their own foreign policy. They conduct their own policy independently of the Chinese. The Chinese, if anything, are dependent on the Russians as much as the Russians are dependent on the Chinese. The Russians depend on China's economy, but the Russians have the rest of the world that they're interfacing with as well. It's not just China. And again, that 
goes back to people misunderstanding the multipolar world order. They think it's just United States, Russia, China. No, it's US, Russia, China, Japan, Turkey, India, Indonesia, Mexico, Brazil, Argentina, Egypt, Arabia, Iran. It's the multipolar world order, not the tripolar world order, not the quadrupolar world order. All oh, the EU is a great power. It's multinational, truly multinational in scope. That's what we're dealing with here. The multipolar world order. So this, this idea that the Russians are subservient to China is inaccurate. In fact, it is the Russians in China who are leading together the emergence of the multipolar world order. But if you had to pick a, a single leader out of the two, it's Russia right now. It is most certainly Russia right now. The Chinese are content to being in the background, minding their business, which is the business of doing business, and letting the Russians do the speaking. Russia's doing the speaking. Russia's out there doing the speaking and the fighting. The Chinese will be doing the fighting soon enough with Taiwan. Hopefully, Blinken has done a good enough job to keep that from happening for a while. But the Russians are front and center. They are at the center of the stage. And they are the ones in the driver's seat, not just of the conflict in Ukraine, but of this transition to the multipolar world order. They are the leader of the multipolar world order. And that's a very underappreciated fact. And so that's a lot of these comments that Putin has made when put together really sort of convey that. And that's why I decided to cover them, not just because they're important on their own, which they are, but because altogether they really do convey sort of the situation that we are looking at right now. So I'll start with his remarks on Ukraine's counteroffensive. Now he claims that 160 tanks were destroyed, 360 armored vehicles destroyed. He says, quote, it is a massive counteroffensive with the use of prepared reserves. The enemy, he's talking about Ukraine, the enemy had no success in any of the sectors. They had heavy losses, all of their losses are close to the estimate of what is called catastrophic in terms of personnel. The losses may wounds that can be may be wounds that can be healed, or they may be permanent. Usually permanent losses are 25%, but Ukraine's losses are almost 50-50. We have 10 times fewer casualties than Ukraine. As for armored vehicles that have lost uh, as for armored vehicles, they have lost over 160 tanks and almost 360 armored vehicles of various types during that time, which we are sure, end quote. Now, that's some bold statements. That is some very bold statements, 160 tanks, 360 armored vehicles. But then again, when you, you see the numerous pictures and videos of these uh, these tanks and our vehicles, just black images in the background in these lines and these columns, it's believable. It's very believable. And then, of course, you have the obvious fact. Well, actually, I can't necessarily say it's obvious because I only stumbled across it myself while talking about this in the last episode. The Ukrainians don't have air cover. They do not have air cover for their land vehicles, for their land forces. And so there's nothing stopping the Russian Air Force or Russian missiles from taking them down. The Ukrainians do not have sufficient air defense to cover that. 
And they, of course, we're talking about sending two F-16s. Ooh, as if that was going to give them control over the skies. It's not. It's not. And that's assuming that they knew how to fly the damn things, which they have to be trained to do. And even if you could, that's what two fighter jets. Come on now. Come on now. Two fighter jets against Russia is crazy. Two fighter jets to get air superiority is crazy. That That's not air cover. <laughs> that's not air cover. That's uh, you can hit something from the air. You're, you're not covered. That's like that's like tearing off a strip from a, a towel. Tearing a strip off of a towel and covering it, you covering yourself with it and saying, look, I have covered. No, you don't. You're exposed. You have a little bit. You have a, a little bit of modesty left, but you're exposed. You're not covered at all. There is no air cover in that. And so because the Ukrainians don't have air cover, which is necessity for the protection of your land forces, because they don't have air cover, they're completely exposed to the enemy's air power, which is the Russian Air Force, which has been getting more aggressive, certainly since like March and April, when they started whittling down, completing the whittling down of Ukraine's air defense network. And they're still actively hunting what remains of Ukraine's air defenses. And as air defense, Ukraine's air defense continues to get weaker, the Russian Air Force can continue to get more aggressive. And we're seeing that right now because there's nothing stopping the, the Russian Air Force and Russian drones carrying bombs on them from literally just bullying the Ukrainian armor. Uh, that's what this is. That their armored vehicles are just getting bullied by Russian aircraft and Russian anti-tank missiles and Russian artillery and Russian anti-tank artillery. It's just, it's toxic. It's actually toxic. And the Ukrainians, again, haven't even been able to reach Russia's real defensive lines, the heavy fortification that the Russians have been digging into for months now in preparation for this coming offensive. They haven't even got there yet. And Putin also sort of confirms on his end, uh, assuming that you want to run with his numbers, perhaps you do, perhaps you don't, but he says that their losses, their permanent losses, so we're talking deaths, essentially, are almost 50-50, which is, again, in line with what we've observed throughout the entire war, which is Ukraine's deaths have been consistently around half of their total casualties from the beginning to end of this war. It's been a, a shocking thing to observe. And so here he is, Putin, sort of corroborating that. But what he also says, and this is very interesting. Now, again, whether you want to believe it or not is up to you. But he says that we have, and he's referring to Russia, we have 10 times fewer casualties than Ukraine. 10 times. Now, that completely blows out of the water. The seven to one loss ratios, the eight to one that we heard about over the course of last summer, the nine to one that was rumored, 10 times fewer casualties than Ukraine is what he says you Russia's losses are at. So if we take the our podcast estimate here, which is that Ukraine's total casualties are probably coming close to half a million, but we're going to go with 400,000. If Russia has taken 10 times fewer casualties in Ukraine, and Ukraine's total casualties are about 400,000, maybe half a million, 
Then that means Russia's total casualties are around 40,000, which is, again, in line with numbers that we've seen. The BBC they did that article where they were trying to find the total number of Russian dead, and they came up with a little over 24,000 dead Russians. So if we assume that the Russians are 50-50 in their casualties, although they say that 25% is normal, permanent loss is the, the total casualty ratio. Uh, if we if we assume that the Russians are 50-50 in their losses, their deaths to their rest of their casualties as well, then that would mean that the Russians have taken a, a total of 50,000 losses. So that's not too far out of line. It's not necessarily the one-tenth of 400,000, but it is one, it's a tenth of half a million. And it's a hell of a lot lower than half a million. Like, yes, it's bad for the Russians to be losing those men. 50,000 casualties is no joke. I mean, this is war. And these are certainly not numbers that we've been dealing with. Uh, not in any, any of our wars, not in such a short space of time. But a year, 50,000 casualties with such high intensity combat compared to half a million? And these are, again, these are the podcast estimates here. We're talking 400,000. We're being nice to the Ukrainians. Douglas McGregor, RFK Jr., they're not nice to the Ukrainians. And perhaps they're the ones who are right. And I'm just lowballing it a bit too much by hundreds of thousands. I already said Colonel Douglas McGregor and RFK Jr. are effectively putting the total number of Ukrainian casualties at 700,000, three quarters of a million. Now, what's that? Oh, oh boy, the Russians have lost 75,000 men. Oops. And all it took was three quarters of a million Ukrainians to do that? That's not winning. So three quarters of a million, 75,000 Russian total casualties, and then 24,000 dead? That sounds pretty accurate. So now the more we dig into these numbers, the more I'm looking at, okay, I'm uh, I, like I thought, I'm probably going to be underestimating Ukraine's casualties a bit much. But this is what Putin is saying. And the Russians aren't exactly lying. They haven't, they haven't been lying that much throughout this war. Perhaps because of the pressures on them to lead the multipolar world and the emergence of the multipolar world have forced them to be much more honest and transparent. Maybe it's just a feature of the Russian system and we haven't really appreciated it until now, but they have been fairly honest throughout the war. So I don't have too much reason to believe that he's lying here. He also says, quote, our troops were near Kiev. Do we need to go back or not? I'm asking a rhetorical question. It is clear you have no answer. He's talking to the reporter. And he says, I can only answer it myself. I think we'll be back, end quote. And he also says that Russia, quote, Russia will enter a new Ukrainian territory on a new axis soon, end quote. Now, will he push straight into Kiev? Who knows? Uh, I'm, not, I'm not even going to go there with the predictions. What I will say, what I will say is... They're going to attack Ukraine. Well, what, what else is there to be said? The Ukrainians have moved troops to the border between them and Belarus. So they're very afraid that the Russians are going to attack them there. 
but perhaps they're going to attack in Kharkov and then just catch the Ukrainians completely by surprise because the Ukrainians are attacking and the Russians are just going to send in a, a brand new force of troops from a completely different axis, expanding the front line and threatening Ukraine's flanks. Because if we look at a map of Ukraine, right, if we look at a map of Ukraine, they've gone, the map hasn't moved much for months, for almost a year. So they've gotten really comfortable with the positions that they've had. So if the Russians suddenly come in around the Kharkov area, uh, that's a problem because now it threatens your established flanks that you've had for a year that you got comfortable in. That, that That's bad news. That's very, very, very bad news. This isn't what you want to see. This isn't what you want. Especially when you're struggling as is to try to get past you, Russia's defenses and you haven't even made it to their real defensive lines. What are you going to do when a brand new Russian army starts rolling in from your flanks? From a, a direction that you, quite frankly, were not expecting. Because if they've reallocated troops to the border with Belarus, because there are joint Russian and Belarusian units out there. If they move the troops to the border with Belarus, that means that you've left Kharkov wide open. It means that you've left Sumy right open. It means that you've potentially left Chernihiv open as well. So if they're going to come in from a brand new axis, maybe that means that they attack from the south as well, or through Crimea with a brand new push, or it means they do attack from the north. Maybe they go along the port, the Polish border and push to Lviv instead of to Kiev. Maybe that's what they do. Maybe they come in from multiple new axes at once instead of only one. Because he says we're going to come in from a new axis sometime soon. He that's not necessarily that it's only going to be one new axis. Maybe he attacks Kharkov and Kiev at the same time. Maybe he goes for Kiev and Lviv and opens up a, a front in the exact opposite direction from where the Ukrainians are. But I, I think he's going to go for Kharkov. If, if I have to bet... If I have to throw my throw the dice here, I'm going to say that they go for Kharkov. Why? Because it threatens the flanks of the entire Ukrainian established line. And forces them to redeploy along the entire line, which the Russians can exploit for their own offensive purposes. Because there's not necessarily a guarantee that if you open up a front from the rear, that the Ukrainians are going to move the troops that they have in the trenches in front of you in the south. There's no guarantee they're necessarily going to move troops away from that to go find the north. They might just go find some dudes on the street and put a gun in their hand and send them to the front instead. But if you attack from the flanks of the existing line, then they have to use the troops that they already have there to respond to that. That's my guess. I expect to be wrong because I usually am when I'm talking about the Russian military and making predictions on what exactly they're going to do. But if I had to throw the dice, I'll throw the dice like that. But these are very interesting statements being made by Putin. And I don't think we can discount them, especially as, again, Ukraine's counteroffensive goes incredibly poorly. Russia is going to make an offensive eventually. We all know that they will. So once Ukraine's offensive peters out and they have nothing left to give, they exhaust their reserves and the Russians start moving, I think we're going to see a, a 
a much more rapid pace to this war than we've seen since the beginning, where we're going to see the Russians start capturing land in a way that we haven't seen since the beginning, where they stole nearly the entirety of Ukraine's Black Sea coastline. I think we're going to see that again when the backbreaker offensive begins. And it's not going to be a rapid push. It's going to be slow grind, but it's going to be a grind with some very noticeable changes to the map instead of the very, very, very creeping offensive where you see them gradually subsume Bakhmut and then surround Bakhmut on all sides. And then they take Bakhmut slowly. I don't think we're going to see that. I don't think it's going to be that slow anymore, especially once they inject brand new armies into the Ukrainian fight. We're going to see a faster pace of progression. It's going to, it's going to be slow. It's going to be methodical, but it's not, it's not going to be, we take, we took one foot of land today. Oh, we took another foot of land tomorrow. It's going to be, oh, we took a mile today. Oh, we took a half a mile tomorrow. Oh, we took another mile. It's going to be, it's going to be like that. I, I think that's what it's going to be. And that's still pretty slow when you consider how big Ukraine is, but compared to the rest of the war, that's really fast. And I think that's what we're going to see. Now, Russia says that uh, Putin says that, quote, we have a lot of depleted uranium munitions and we will use them in response. There is no use. There's no need for their preventative use. Now, he's talking about responding to the depleted uranium that we've supplied the Ukrainians with. And we as the British and and we saw part of that munition store get blown up when the Russians were targeting Ukrainian ammunition dumps. So now they're going, okay, well, if you're going to use depleted uranium, then we're going to use depleted uranium. Now, will they actually? They might, although they might say that they just won't until they encounter it on the battlefield. I don't think they're going to use it in parts of the front that aren't, uh, that they're not being shot at with depleted uranium. But if they encounter a place where they are being shot at with depleted uranium rounds, then they will respond with depleted uranium rounds and get throw back what's being thrown at them. Because that's how the Russians have taken the entire war, really. So escalation there and potential escalation, the likes of which we haven't seen since, well, the beginning of the war. And all of it in Russia's favor. Russia's winning on the battlefield. So then what do we do? What else? Will you move on to the international front? And on the international front, you have... St. Petersburg, where Putin met with a number of other delegates. Uh, his guest of honor was the president of Algeria. And in this uh, economic forum, he talked about there was an emphasis on using the state to support businesses hurt by the sanctions war. He talked about expanding infrastructure capacity for rails and ports in the Far East. Uh, so Russian Vladivostok and whatnot, so that you could attract uh, more goods coming in through the ports over there. He also talked about the, he put a very heavy emphasis on the importance of the North-South connection between Russia and Iran, as well as the railroad that has uh, been established between Russia and Iran as well. And he also pledges to extend high-speed internet across all towns in Russia with populations above 500 people. And he says that he wants to attract um, tourism. He wants water and ski resorts, Essentially, he wants to make Russia a very nice place to live for the Russians. 
and he wants to attract tourism as well to bring in money for the state. Interestingly enough, he does bring up the demographic issues that Russia faces. And he says that there is a very pressing need to use automation and AI to compensate for the demographic induced shortfalls in workforce because there's going to be fewer people working. So you're going to have to be more effective and more efficient. And he also puts an emphasis on educating those who are still there, the smaller but very crucial generation of young workers. He says, okay, they're going to need to be much more heavily educated. They're going to need to be experts in their fields so that they can be very effective and very competitive and so they can have higher wages because you know you don't necessarily want unskilled labor and then pay unskilled labor high wages. No, we want you to have high wages, but we also want you to be high skilled labor. So that, that's going to be the focus. And it'll be very interesting to see uh, the success of policy because the demographic issue is going to be something that the entire developed world is dealing with. So are we watching Russia in this regard be a leader in handling demographic decline uh, in the interim period between, you know, the decline and the recovery? The recovery is going to be there. I mean, there are populations of people within countries that do have kids, so the recovery is going to be there. But the interim, the decades of population decline, and the in, the periods where the workforce is much smaller than you would otherwise expect it to be and which needed to be, is Russia going to lead the way in dealing with that as well? Because again, they are they're a leader here. They are the leader of this new emerging world. And one of the common issues in the multipolar world order, at least among the developed countries, is the demographic issue. So are they leading the way towards navigating demographic decline in this regard? It'll be very interesting to see this moving forward. So he does that. And he also says that they should use AI and automation for mining and industrial production primarily. So that, that was one of the key takeaways from the St. Petersburg Economic uh, St. Petersburg International Economic Forum. But the last thing that he made a series of remarks on was uh, a separate event. Now, I couldn't find the name for the event, so perhaps it was just a meeting that he had with a number of African delegates. But in this meeting that he had with the, the African delegation, he made public a number of draft treaties which were signed by the Russian and Ukrainian delegations back in March of 2022. We often talk about, again, the unofficial Minsk III agreement where the Russians came in suing for peace and they tried to get Ukraine to sign the deal. Ukraine said no. And now we see him publishing, well, making public, and he makes public the deal that was reached and it was signed by the delegates. He has made public this deal. Uh, and this came in sort of in response to the, the African delegation. When they came in, they came in, they were talking about peace. They put forth their own peace proposals. And Putin unveiled what we knew happened, but we didn't necessarily know the specifics of this treaty. He unveiled the treaty. The Treaty of Permanent Neutrality and Security Guarantees where the Russians were going to withdraw their troops from the territories north of Kiev. It would, and 
they was gonna they had laid out the specific number of troops and equipment that the Ukrainian military was gonna have. Uh, the Russians wanted Ukraine to have around eighty-five thousand regular troops, fifteen thousand national guardsmen. So basically, a hundred thousand troops. They were gonna allow them to have three hundred and forty-two tanks, eighty-nine multiple raw ro- multiple launch rocket systems, and they it, it was very in detail down to the specific item, I- line by line, item by item. Is that the treaty covered it all? The, the Ukrainians wanted to have two hundred fifty thousand. And they wanted to have, obviously, more. The Russians said, if you're going to be neutral, well, you have to act neutral. So it was more likely that the Russians were going to get their way. Again, because both of them signed this. This is what we were looking at. Uh, and, and again, uh, we this was sabotaged. This was the deal that both of them reached. And you have that, that narrative where people say, oh, Putin miscalculated because he thought he was going to go in and get the peace. And then, well, it literally almost happened. It, it was even closer than I said it was. Or I didn't know that they both signed on to the document. I didn't know that they got that far. I just knew they were in the peace talks and that they almost had an agreement, but that the Ukrainians walked out because the West promised to give them aid and money. I didn't know that they had made so much progress as the point of signing a draft treaty and that's one of the the biggest things that hit me looking at this agreement and i think it was very deliberate that putin sort of made public this thing as he was talking to the african leaders when they were giving him peace proposals because he had been given multiple peace proposals indonesia gave him one china proposed one although uh, indonesia china I believe South Korea put one forth. A number of African states put uh, peace proposals forth. India has sort of stayed silent on the issue, though they're in favor of peace. And now you have this African delegation coming forth again with another peace proposal. Uh, granted, uh, to be fair, Zelensky did put forth his own peace plan. We covered that on the episode, on the podcast uh, back in December and January. But Putin has sort of been bombarded with all these peace proposals from countries who are in with the multipolar world order who are on board with the new world that is being built and so there's probably been pressure on him to make peace so as he used this opportunity to expose the peace that was going to be had because it's not like he's just a, oh we don't want peace we just want war no we came in trying to make peace and here's the peace that we wanted the ukrainians signed it and that's really just uh, such a damning piece of evidence. Like you signed this, <laughs> you signed this, and you know you're gonna lecture us on peace. You signed the treaty, the draft treaty. It wasn't necessarily um, binding, but you signed this agreement, and then you walked away from it. We came in suing for peace. You said yes, only to say no two seconds later. So to you, Ukraine, and to all the nations of the world, don't come lecturing us about peace because we aren't the ones who said no. You want to you lecture somebody about peace? How about you go ask the Ukrainians why they said no to this treaty right here that they signed? And that's, it's the diplomatic equivalent of being caught in 4K. It's what just happened to the Ukrainians. You got caught in 4K. They, they caught you, bro. 
they caught you lacking so incredibly hard. It is that's just so damning. What do you say to that? It's like, oh yeah, we signed the treaty, but um, see what had happened was uh, 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 fuck Putin. Am I right? <laughs> like, what? What are you? How are you supposed to counter that? What are you supposed to say to that? Oops, we <laughs> we signed the treaty, but didn't actually want to make peace. Well, th- that goes against the narrative that Zelensky is the peacemaker. Okay, well, uh, what do you what do you say to that? There, there, I don't think there's much that can be said. Oh, you signed it and then walked away. So clearly, we're not the ones who don't want to make peace. It's you. Now the world's looking at Ukraine. Okay. I guess Russians aren't the ones opposing war. It's the West. And that's the takeaway here. That's the takeaway here. Now, one of the other things, uh, and before I continue, I'll say that Putin claims, he, he claims that the assassination of one of the lead negotiators on the, the Ukrainian side was killed by MI6, which is the British equivalent to the CIA. The, the treaty also stipulated, because it was the Treaty on Permanent Neutrality and Security Guarantees, the treaty also stipulated that the U.S., Turkey, the U.K., France, Belarus, and China were all going to be security guarantors of Ukraine. And I guess as a side note on us, in a, in a very small way, uh, in a very small way, because peace is the priority here, keeping people from dying is the priority here, but in a small way, I am a little happy that this treaty wasn't signed because, well, I'm not trying to be a security guarantor for Ukraine. I'm not trying to babysit them. I don't want, I don't want to provide daycare for the Ukrainians. So again, in that very small and very personal way, not the priority, very, very, very small. I'm kind of happy that they didn't sign the treaty. Granted, it wouldn't be binding for us because we, we didn't sign the treaty, but yeah. So, in that little way, and I can't stress little enough because, again, peace is the priority here. Kind of happy that we didn't get a part of that and add another dependency to the long list of liabilities that we already have. But this is the proposal that the Russians put forth, that the U.S., U.K., France, Turkey, and your neighbor Belarus, they're all going to protect you. China, the new superpower, they're going to they're gonna be your security guarantor. That opens up our flank from the from the opposite end. If we violate your neutrality, now we have to deal with all, we have to deal with these other great powers. We're going to offer that to you, a check and balance on ourselves. And all you have to do is literally nothing, be neutral, and that's it. My goodness, that's a deal. And the Ukrainians said no. So uh, not only is it damning that the Ukrainians uh, said yes, I say they say no, but they said yes, they signed the treaty, and then said no two seconds later. That's a deal. Like I don't, I don't know if you know that. That's an incredible deal to have after you just got invaded by this country that you can't win against. That they're going to put checks and balances on themselves. They're not going to take any more of your land than land that you already don't have control of. You don't have control of Crimea. You don't have control of the Donbass and Luhansk. You already don't control those territories. And you haven't been able to get control of them for eight years. 
They're saying recognize these changes to the border and then just be a neutral country. We're not we will offer you protection from essentially all of our <laughs> our meaningful neighbors, the United States, Britain and France, Turkey, our neighbor to the south, China, our neighbor to the east. Britain and France to the west, the United States to the west, and technically to the east with Alaska and our Pacific fleet and our bases in the Middle East. We're, we're going to literally put checks and balances on ourselves. And all you have to do is accept that you lost territory that you already don't have control of anymore. And you have to be neutral. And they said no. They said yes. And then they said no. So it's like, okay, well, I, I, you don't want peace. If you're not going to accept a deal that that good, that that's a very benevolent deal. That's a very good deal. And you said no. So, sucks to suck. Now, Alex, both Alex and Alexander of the Duran were very quick to point out that what we learned from the release of this draft treaty is that the whole siege of Kiev narrative, you know, the one where the Ukrainians launched this glorious counteroffensive that forced the Russians out in the north. Yet yeah, that narrative, we learned that that one is about as real as the ghost of Kiev was, which is to say it's not real at all. There was no great glorious counteroffensive in the north that pushed the Russians out. The Russians walked out. Now, this has been a, a debated topic uh, before. But now we see that it is literally stipulated in this treaty that the Ukrainians signed. And oh my, it's that it's they literally got caught in 4K. They literally got caught in 4K. Like the more I'm saying this, the more I'm, I'm going on about the treaty and the peace that could have been had and the things that are going on in this war. It's like, oh, my goodness, you, you got caught. You got exposed. You literally got pranked. <laughs> it's 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 just that's just such a damning piece of evidence that's such a damning piece of evidence that's like the, I, I, it's so bad for the ukrainian side i just <laughs> it's it's like you there's a cookie jar right there's a cookie jar now there's, there's about 20 cookies in there you dip your hand in the cookie jar took half of it out and then you ran off with the cookie now your parents come to you and they ask did you eat from the cookie jar you say no <laughs> and then they pull up a picture of you dipping your hands into the cookie jar looking at the camera so you they can see that it's you they can see your face it's there's no guesswork needed it's it's literally you it's you got caught in 4k it's it's so damning. That's the level of like damning evidence that the Ukrainians have against them right now, with the, with the fact that they signed this treaty. It's just it's so bad. It is so that really does change my perspective on this. It really does, and it's. But again, that narrative that they had this little offensive in the north that pushed the Russians out is fake, and it's been proven fake because of this treaty. The Russians signed the treaty themselves as well and they pulled out from the north as per the treaty and then the ukrainians reneged on their word so the second the russians leave and follow through on their actions you fall back on your word so not only are the ukrainians against peace 
not only have they proven themselves against peace, against a very favorable treaty to them that only required them to be neutral and accept the loss of territories that they already didn't control, but they're duplicitous. You offer them such a, again, this, this is a very generous treaty. That's such a generous treaty. Like, that's such favorable terms that they were given. They took the terms of the treaty. They signed the treaty, let the Russians do their part in moving out of the north, and then they turned their back. That They're duplicitous. They're duplicitous. And Putin said that what guarantees are that they won't break agreements again. So now we're getting more people in Russia talking about the things that I was talking about when the war started, which is how are the Russians supposed to trust the Ukrainians when the Ukrainians can't be trusted to honor their word when they sign a treaty? This is a continuation of that. It's a continuation of what happened with the Minsk agreements all over again. It's quite literally Minsk three, in an unofficial capacity, of course. They're duplicitous. So not only do they not want peace, they won't take a favorable treaty a favorable piece to them but they'll sign a treaty make you think that they're that you're getting somewhere and then they'll stab you in the back they're duplicitous the ukrainian it, it, it this is just so bad the fact that he released this treaty is just so bad for the ukrainians and he's been sitting on this for a whole year and it's just just bad for the ukrainians especially now they're in this counteroffensive and they're failing in the counteroffensive and now they get this they get this uh, 4K photo video evidence of them robbing a bank <laughs> levied against them. It, it's bad. It's really bad. And it, but what it also confirms, and I'll sort of leave off on this point, it confirms what we've really known all along. Because we've been, I've been saying it for a while. You've known it for a while. It confirms to us that this war really could have been over literally a month after it began. It confirms that the Russians came in suing for peace. And it confirms that the Ukrainians were going along with the peace process. They signed the treaty. Again, it's not binding or anything, but you signed the draft agreement. You agreed to some of these stipulations as a, at least as a sort of baseline for further negotiations to work out the kinks of, its, of the and the specifics you signed on to this. The war could have literally been over in a month with a, a favorable peace to Ukraine. With all the countries that they would have been allies with, courtesy of NATO and the EU, as their security guarantors. And they would have had to do literally nothing. And they didn't take it. And now... They have to sit in this puddle of their own consequences. The, the consequences of their actions. This is, oh, it's, it's, it's I, I, don't, I don't know what else to say other than it's, it's so bad for the Ukrainians. Like, I, I can only say that so many times, but it's bad for the Ukrainians. It's bad. But I will leave it there. Woo! That's all I've got for you today on this episode. That's all I've got. 
I hope I do hope you've enjoyed today's broadcast on my geopolitical podcast. The world is changing, folks. And we're gonna have fun watching it together. Now I've been your host, Hushan Wade, and you've been listening to This Week in Geopolitics. So till we meet again next Monday, servus.